Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. should we care for people who cannot take care of themselves? Those among us, for instance, experiencing dementia, the after effects of brain injuries, or other disabilities. Are such lives worth living? Are such human beings still equal? Or do they have lower moral value because they are no longer able to rationally direct their own lives? Should removing tube-supplied sustenance be deemed akin to every other medical treatment that can be stopped, or because it can only end in death, should special rules apply? How should families be treated by the healthcare system when they disagree with doctors' recommendations about ceasing life-sustaining treatment or even diagnosis of brain death? These are the crucial human exceptionalism issues with which my guest grapples every day. Bobby Schindler was living a quiet life as an English teacher when his sister, Terry Schiavo, became the subject of an international headline-generating lawsuit that culminated in her death by dehydration in 2005. Since that crucible, as president of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network, Bobby has advocated for the medically vulnerable and their families. He is a full-time advocate, speaker, and writer, a senior fellow at Americans United for Life and an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Bobby and the Life and Hope Network have been instrumental in providing resources and support to almost 4,000 patients and families at risk of withdrawal or denial of care. And I am proud to say, Bobby is my friend. Hi, Bobby. Welcome to Humanize. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for the uh, invitation. It's good to uh, good to speak with you again. Really good to have you here. I, you know, I want our interview to mostly be forward-looking, but I do think that the audience should be reminded about your sister's case and what happened. How did you and your family go from living a normal life to the Klieg lights of international controversy? As you know, it's difficult to really explain all the details of Terry's case, but essentially, uh, back in 1990, our, our entire family was living in St. Petersburg, Florida. Terry, Terry was 26 years old at the time, and... Uh, I was just 13, her, 13 months her younger, and unexpectedly, I got a call from my dad in the middle of the night. Uh, we, uh, Terry and I coincidentally lived in the same apartment complex. She was living there with her husband, Michael Schiavo. I was living there with a buddy of mine, uh, and I uh, got a call from my dad uh, letting me know that Michael had called him, telling him that Terry had collapsed. My dad said, my dad told Michael to hang up the phone, and my dad called me and said to get over to your sister's, Michael just called and, and something's wrong. 
and uh, she had collapsed. So I got there. I got off the phone. I was there within minutes, and um, I had saw her just earlier that day, so I wasn't really too concerned. I thought she had just fainted. Uh, but when I got to, to her apartment, uh, I leaned down, and I, I remember I, I kind of shook her shoulder saying, come on, Terry, get up. She was laying in the hallway face down. Uh, Michael was pretty frantic, and um, uh, I said, come on, Terry, get up. And she was unresponsive, and it was just then that the uh, paramedics arrived. And soon thereafter, I knew there was something uh, seriously wrong because they, uh, they started working on her, and within, uh, within seconds, they were hitting her with the defibrillators. Anyway, uh, so you she, know, let, me, let me interrupt you just for a second. Look, you know, most people go through life, and life is going on as usual, and then suddenly something can really happen that upends everything. That has to have had a, a, a tremendous impact not only on, you know, Terry's life and the difficulty she experienced, but your whole family. Well, certainly, uh, yes. And uh, it's one of very few things that have been seared into my memory, uh, Wesley, uh, that night. Uh, I will never uh, soon forget it. I haven't. Uh, it's almost, you know, the old saying, like it happened last night. It, it, it's so... Uh, parts of it are so vividly still in my mind of of seeing my sister on the ground and and uh, or you know laying on the floor, not knowing how serious it was at the time, but then finding out how serious it, it truly was. But they were you know the paramedics worked on her for uh, must have been a half hour. They transported her to the hospital. They were able to stabilize her, and uh, f- she was in she was in dire straits. They didn't think she was going to live through the night. But uh, from her collapse, she went. And incidentally, I always like to mention this, it, it's a still unexplained collapse. We, we never knew the reason or the cause that uh, caused her to collapse that night. But nevertheless, she went several minutes without oxygen to the brain and sustained a, uh, a, a pretty, pretty severe brain injury. And um, that's when it all started, February 20th, 1990, Wesley. And uh, from there, uh, it's been just a, a, a long journey, an unexpected journey. Uh, could have never predicted what was going to happen. But it was all, all in an effort, really, to provide my sister care and treatment and to, and to love her regardless of, of what was going to happen as a consequence from her brain injury. At some point, you know, moving forward several years, uh, you and your family, the Schindler family, this is your father, Bob, your mother, and your sister, your mother, Mary, and your sister, um, had a departure with Michael, uh, her husband about what to do, how to go forward with Terry's care. And at, at some point, um, I think it was 1998, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael petitioned the court to allow uh, Terry's feeding tube to be removed. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, eight years after collapse. And, and, and incidentally, or ironically, perhaps is the better word, it was on February 14th, 1993, just three years after Terry's collapse, when this uh, rift or this... Uh, um, separation between Michael and my family uh, occurred. Uh, and, and that's when uh, the, the battle with Michael began. It wasn't in 1998. It actually had started uh, 1993. But yes, you're correct. It was 1998 when Michael petitioned the court seeking permission to take away her food and hydration, her feeding tube. Right. And, and at that time, most people in this country were not aware, I think, that uh, elderly people, people with disabilities, cognitive disabilities such as Terry, that uh, because tube supplied sustenance, food and water, uh, is uh, considered a medical treatment, no different than 
say, surgery, chemotherapy, uh, insulin, or whatever it might be, that there is a right to stop providing it. And that was the basis for taking away her food and water, right? Right, right. And you're, and, and you're, you're absolutely right, Wesley. Most people don't know. We didn't know it. Our, our family didn't know it at the time. Uh, we, we learned. So we were, I look back now on this case, and our family was so naive. Uh, we didn't know well, that, that old saying, you don't know what you don't know. And that was the case with my family. We were, hey, we were just an ordinary family that kind of got thrown into this mess and just wanting to care for Terry. We had no idea what we were about to confront and what we were going to face. And we didn't know, as you just mentioned, that, that food hydration through a feeding tube was uh, considered medical treatment. But that was really... Right, and it, and, it, and it can be withdrawn or withheld right. like any other form of medical yeah. treatment, even though the only outcome is death. Death right. by and dehydration. Was, and that was the... Un- and, and I try to remind people uh, when, when I do speak that that was, the, that, was, that, that was it. That was all that was sustaining Terry. Uh, I, I, guarantee, I guarantee people, if you ask people even today... I'm sure you get more people that believe, still believe that Terry was on a ventilator that was, was right. you know, you know, machine, so to speak, in order to keep her alive. When in, in fact, it was just food and hydration. She had difficulty swallowing because of the brain injury, and because of that, she needed a feeding tube to administer her food and water. But and she'd been diagnosed. That, that was it. She, that was the only thing keeping her alive. And she was di- she was diagnosed um, uh, as um, unconscious which you dispute and I don't want to, you know, rehash all of that because people are going to, you know, not know, but her, her case and your valiant fight, in my opinion, became world famous in ways that other cases like hers that I had actually been part of in terms of advocate advocating for people to uh, be able to remain alive had not. I mean, I had uh, been involved in a case called Robert Wenland, uh, out of California. And Robert Wenland, they were going to take away his feeding tube, even though he could roll a, a wheelchair down a hospital corridor. That made a little bit of news, but nothing like what Terry's case made. And I've always wondered why Terry's became so huge. And I think it was because of the advocacy strategy that your family engaged. And that was to use the internet to set up a website and to upload videos of Terry uh, so that people could see her as a human being instead of an abstraction. For example, I remember one video where uh, somebody, a doctor, asked Terry if she could put her eyebrows up. It took a moment because people with brain injury uh, have difficulty immediately processing. But within a, a very short period of time, not only did she put her eyebrows up, she put them up so high her forehead wrinkled. And so this is the kind of thing that I think really attracted in our age of uh, television and and video and the internet. Uh, I think that is what attracted so much attention because you could not deny her humanity any longer. Uh, I assume that was an intentional strategy. Oh, sure. And and that's how we found you, by the way, Wesley, because we knew uh, we were doing research and we found we were looking for people that were advocating for those like my sister. And and I think it was the Robert Wedden case. That that brought us to you eventually, but but nevertheless, when when Judge Greer ruled uh, in favor of Michael and giving him permission to take Terry's food and hydration away, it was actually right after that we we kind of saw my my family and I because we were shocked that the judge ruled the way he did. We we didn't think it would it would be possible. We didn't think the judge would rule in Michael's favor. So when that happened, 
yeah, I mean, it was, we just said, okay, we're, we're going to do it. I remember I, I taught, it was my dad and I, we, we, we said, we're going to do everything in our power to expose what they're trying to do to Terry and use every resource that we, we could find to, to draw attention to this case, to stop it from happening. And, and that was kind of our mindset. And so that it, it just started from there. I was a teacher at a high school and I remember going to my teachers looking for, and, and you mentioned the internet. I had a buddy who was a, a web designer back then. And he was the, one of the first persons I contacted. And we, I remember sitting in his bedroom with his computer. And we, we started the, uh, the website. Uh, Terry's, it was called the, the um, uh, we call it Terry's, terrysfight.org is what we, uh, was the website address. Anyway, we, we, we built a website and, and that's, that's how it started. And we just, we just did everything we could to get the news out what was happening to Terry and used any resource we could find to draw attention because we thought it was such, even back then, Wesley, even before it was making a lot of news, we saw the injustice and we saw what could possibly happen. And we were going to intervene and do everything we could to try and stop it legally within our legal powers, obviously, but anybody we could find, anybody we could use, we were going to, and, and again, that's what brought us to you. Uh, you might remember. Yeah, you came, uh, I was giving a speech and, and you guys, you and your family showed up and that's how we met. And I remember at the time saying that as long as you have that uh, unconscious diagnosis, something something called persistent vegetative state, and I want, I'm going to get into that terminology in a minute, uh, that I didn't see how you could prevail because people in the society had actually were actually actively writing off people uh, who were uh, in that circumstance, and uh, I was wanting to <laughs> honestly stay out of it because it's so heartbreaking when these cases are lost. But, uh, at one point I noticed you guys were in the Alamo and the dust was flying and I thought, well, I got to ride through the gate. And so, uh, I participated as, uh, actively and vigorously as I could to try to help with, uh, writing and advocating and so forth. But I think the thing that is really striking in this is that we were talking in this whole case about taking a helpless human being's food and water away. That's the basic bottom line of it. I don't care how the delivery is provided. That's just a pretext. We were talking about taking away somebody's food and water so that they dehydrated to death. If you did that to Osama bin Laden, it would be deemed a war crime. If you did that to a dog, it would be animal abuse. But when it was done to your sister, it was considered medical ethics. And uh, I know that must have just been infuriating for your family. We didn't think it was going to happen. We just couldn't believe that they would deliberately starve and dehydrate Terry to death because of her disability. And even the discouraging the conversations we would have that as long as Terry had this diagnosis over her head, at least legally, our, it was going to be uphill battle. But we were, we, were, we were getting all kind of information, very discouraging information, at least from, from the context of, of our, our fight legally. But it didn't stop our family. We, we were determined. I mean, we, this was my sister's life. And right. even the discouraging news we were receiving, we just kept pressing forward. And we were just just doing everything that we as a family could think of to, to stop this injustice. And uh, we made some inc incredible headway along the way. And, and uh, but, but still, even at the time, never expected this uh, case to, to kind of uh, grow as big as it, it, it did and, and the people that it reached it before, you know, Terry actually died in 2005. I think it was probably the most prominent uh, bioethics case, even uh, greater than Jack of Orkin and assisted suicide. Uh, in my um, couple of decades of engaging on these issues, 
And I think a lot of that had to do with the vigor with which you defended Terry's value and you defended her life. I, I noticed in the, in the circumstance that there was a tremendous media bias against your family that any possible uh, construction that you were in it for something other than loving Terry would be brought forth, that the terminology used by the media always favored uh, Michael Schiavo's side of the issue, that uh, the fact that Michael uh, was engaged to another woman by his own uh, statement and that he'd sired two children with her while he was deciding what should happen to his what I would call estranged wife, because when you're living with another woman and having children with her, you're no longer married to the person, at least morally, that uh, that that you are legally. Um, that was never even brought up hardly in the media, and Judge Greer didn't seem to care about it. How did how did that um, impact your thinking about the media and about society? Well, you're you're right, and and. And we learned real quick just the power of the media and the influence of the media. But 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 at the same time, we picked up some pretty powerful allies in the media too, Wesley. Uh, Glenn Beck being one, who I think solely just just Glenn Beck was able to to help us uh, significantly as far as getting the information and, and getting out, um, you know, what was happening to Terry and, and and getting support for my sister's life. But nevertheless, you're right. I mean, I could give you so many examples of just the bias and, and what our family was up against. And, and it was, we, we, we hear about a lot, we hear a lot about it today and, and what were, uh, you know, how the media and, and the kind of the propaganda that the media, the media can report. And, and we saw it firsthand in my sister's case, the, the way they were rationalizing what Michael was doing. And it wasn't so much what they were reporting. It was what they were omitting as well. Uh, and it was just, uh, you know, for a family that had no idea, uh, you know, we, we started getting this this media attention, not just you know, throughout the United States, and it was it started to grow internationally. Uh, but but some of the things that we were reading, we were just in disbelief, and uh, and and I think it, it went a long way in, in condemning my sister. And uh, but but at the same time, it, it, I think it helped to to keep the case going and uh, getting a lot of people involved and a lot of our supporters to uh, to help us fight. There, there's a certain revisionist history that has happened uh, with this case and what people remember and what they think about it today. For example, they think it was uh, specifically a pro-life case in terms of abortion of pro-lifers versus everyone else. And that's simply not true. You had the disability rights activists who were on uh, Terry's, sh uh, Terry's side, the idea of saving her life. You had uh, very liberal uh, public fi uh, figures like Ralph Nader and uh, Jesse Jackson, uh, standing with your family. So there really was a, um, and, and then you had also people who might normally be considered, quote, conservative, close quote, who are on the other side of the issue. So this uh, this controversy that really cut into the quick of um, what it means to be family, what it means to be human, this really cut across the usual political and cultural divides, didn't it? It certainly did. And you're right. We were getting, uh, it kind of drew a line, I think, and, and people took sides uh, during this battle. But we did. We had some, uh, we had Nat Hentoff, uh, who you knew very well, who was supporting him and wrote some, even to this day, I go back and read some of his articles. And Nat was so strongly, strongly worded his articles and his support was so important during that time. You, Wesley, I mean, the articles you were writing was impacting this case. So we, we did, we had some some pretty strong allies out there, but I, but I think uh, in general uh, we're up against a, a very liberal media, 
that was just uh, really pounding away this whole right to die uh, narrative and, and really justifying any way they could that 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 Terry's it would be the, Terry's best interest to, to be to be killed. And what was uh, what was really uh, frustrating is the liberal media, if they're liberal, should have been on your side. You were the weak and vulnerable side. You were the one uh, who were who was trying to protect somebody who's with a with a with a serious disability. You were the ones promising to care for her for the rest of her life, uh, and yet I think and and I'm reading a book by uh, bioethicist Charlie Camosi, who you know. He believes uh, that the reason so many people on the quote liberal side of the fence turned against your family was they confused it with the abortion question, and uh, and and I I think that's true too because I remember being so furious because the New York Times wouldn't even report about the case until Operation Rescue uh, leader Randall Terry stood at your side, and then it was front page and it was all about abortion and and uh, it, it really distorted the entire circumstance and the entire and the entire history of the case. Well, that's how they were reporting it. And, and you mentioned earlier, the one thing, again, what they weren't reporting was the 30 local and national disability groups that were publicly advocating for Terry's life. Uh, you didn't hear, you, didn't, you, you hardly heard a mention of these groups that were very public and very strong in their support for Terry's life. But yet all you heard in the media is, is what you said, was the pro-life, the conservatives uh, that, that were you know driving this issue and, and driving you know, a wedge in the, uh, in, in the country and making it you know, linking it to the abortion issue. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was frustrating, Wesley. Even to this day, I look back, and uh, it's even frustrating today when I think about just, just uh, what my family was up against and, and the strong, uh, uh, the, just sort of the strong, the, the powers to be and, and, and how they were just using using their, their what they were able to use to, uh, to, to convince the general public, the, the public, to, uh, to end my sister's life. I don't want to spend all our time uh, back 15 years, 20 years, but I do want to bring up one point. There was this myth going around at the time that dehydrating someone to death is a quiet and peaceful way uh, for someone to die. And you witnessed how that impacted your sister in real life terms. And I know it's a very upsetting and uh, deeply um, grief-causing thing to discuss, but tell the audience what that was like to see your sister de- being dehydrated to death and what she experienced because it was anything but peaceful and quiet and gentle. Yeah, it, it, uh, I, it, I don't know that I could ever properly describe just the, uh, uh, what I witnessed during those two weeks, what my family witnessed. And, and it's interesting, Wesley, and, I, and I'll get back to, to that in a moment, but uh, the, the, the things that I read where they were reporting that trying to convince the public that Terry's death would be peaceful and, and painless that I don't know that they ever experienced or had to watch a family, a, a loved one or family member die this way. And our family was witnessing it. So we, we saw it firsthand the day to day and the deterioration of my sister physically and, and what she was had to endure going without food and hydrations and food and hydration. And all I can compare, I, I, people would ask me and I would say, well, you know, you look at those pictures that you see of the German concentration camps and the people that are being starved and dehydrated to death. And physically, that's what Terry was, was she, she looked like uh, during her last three or four days. 
I remember uh, you uh, came out and, and uh, I believe it was George Philos, the lawyer for Michael Shivo, who said he'd never seen Mrs. Sh- uh, Shivo look so beautiful. And you came out with great anguish and said she's bleeding from her eyes. Yeah, it was, it was terrible. I mean, again, the distortions and the lies, Wesley, but that's, you know, they, they had a lie. I mean, they couldn't come out and, and, and truthfully describe my sister and what was happening in that room. Uh, because it was it was grotesque. It was what nightmares are made of. Uh, no family, no parents should ever have to witness either daughter or a, a family member die this way. I, I wrote an article, as I said, uh, a few years ago, really going into detail about uh, you know, what was happening to Terry physically and you're bleeding, you know, blood pulling in the eyes and uh, just just uh, it, it was. Again, I, I mentioned earlier about those, those few things about this case that will be ever seared in my memory. And, of course, uh, Terry's dehydration death will, will be one of those terrible things I'll never forget. Um, and, it, and it illustrates to me the cruelty of people who are trying to dehumanize uh, our brothers and sisters because they've got disabilities or because uh, they have dementia uh, or because they're unable to, uh, you know, make their own decisions about their lives anymore. The cruelty that that is sometimes exhibited to to uh, get them out of our faces or to to push them away as if they're no longer part of the human family. And before we move on, though, I do feel I must say one thing for listeners, that what happened to Terry and having a feeding tube removed is not the same thing as when somebody is dying naturally and they stop eating and drinking as a natural part of that body shutting down process. That can be peaceful. That can be gentle because it is the natural process of dying. What happened to Terry was completely different because Terry was able to assimilate. She was able to digest. And what happened to her would be the same thing as if uh, uh, I were thrown into a room for two weeks and the door locked and not able to get out because that's the distinction. One is a natural process when it can be peaceful, when that is part of a natural dying experience. And the other was making somebody die by removing food and water that they would otherwise be able to assimilate and digest. And I want people to be very aware of that because I don't want them to think that when people stop eating, uh, that they should be force fed when somebody's dying of cancer, for example, because that's not the case. And and the other side on these issues always like to blur distinctions and definitions, and we have to be careful that we don't do that. No, I agree. I mean, it's, it's important to make that distinction and silo those two types of uh, situations. And uh, but it's also important to note, too, Wesley, that what happened to Terry is happening every day in our country across countless uh, uh, hospitals and nursing homes uh, where, where people who aren't dying and could continue to live with food and hydration through a feeding tube or having them removed and they're dying the same way Terry did. And it's, it goes unreported. There, there's really no, there seems to be really little to no public um, pushback. Uh, and I, to this day, I, I, I simply cannot believe that we've allowed this to, uh, to, to turn into what it's turned into. And, and that's something that's routine. And You know, before your sister's case, a lot of people didn't know. They really didn't know this was happening. After, uh, just about everyone knew. And I think people are morally accountable for the side they take. I mean, no one can say anymore, well, gee, I didn't know they do that. They do do that. And uh, it's up to us in terms of advocating for our families and for ourselves. And, of course, there's the issue of the advanced directive. If somebody doesn't want 
tube feeding when they if they become into a uh, compromised situation they can instruct that they not receive it but of course that was not the circumstance with your sister i want to move on from what happened to her and what what you've been doing subsequently which i think is really important work uh after terry died uh, you and your family started the terry shivo life and hope network which is a nonprofit organization. What's the purpose of the organization and what are the kind of activities in which the foundation engages? Well, just simply, uh, Wesley, we serve as patient advocates and we, uh, we, we try to help uh, families that call us that are in situations where their loved one might be in a denial of care or withdrawal of care situations. So we use the resources that we have uh, and, and see if we can help these families to really help their loved ones getting get the life-affirming care that they're asking or requesting. And, and oftentimes, they're not they're not fighting spouses like our family was fighting uh, with Michael. They're 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 fighting ethics committees. They're fighting insurance companies. They're fighting physicians. They're fighting bioethicists. They're they're fighting hospitals. So uh, we we just uh, you know we it's all volunteer. We we don't charge. Uh, families for trying to help them, but uh, most times, Wesley, they, they need consult from attorneys, and, and we're able to provide them, depending on where they call us from, what state, we, we have a network we work with, network of attorneys, and we reach out to them and connect them with these families, and hopefully that's enough to, to get these loved ones the care they need, uh, but sometimes we have to do more, and just depending on the situation, uh, we're, we're able to to, to, again, use the resources that we've had over the years to help these families, you know, whether it's um, exposing the hospital, getting the media attention, getting perhaps they need a physician that, that might uh, need to examine or at least look at the medical records of their loved ones. So, so whatever it might be, we, we just try to provide that family with, with some type of help to, to, to get their loved one the care that they, they, want, they want to get, get for that, their, their son, their daughter, or their mother, father, whoever. And the, how does that process work in case p- somebody listening might need that kind of assistance? Uh, we, have, uh, we have a, a crisis lifeline. Uh, we have a website. So if, uh, if people go to our website, lifeandhope.com, there's a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week uh, uh, phone number that they can call us. And you know, if it's an emergency situation, uh, we receive that call uh, right away. And, and again, depending on what type of help they need, we'll, we'll get back to them and, and try to help them as, as quickly as we can. Uh, the foundation and you individually have been involved in some very notable cases. One of them was the Charlie Guard case in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I know you flew over to London to try to stand in solidarity with uh, Charlie Guard's parents. Tell the audience about that case and why you thought it was important enough to, to actually uh, go over to the United Kingdom. Sure. Well, we, we were uh, able to connect, the family connected with us, and uh, they were just looking for uh, support uh, because their their son was, uh, uh, the, the hospital in London had decided that they were going to end his life, uh, remove his, um, his uh, I believe he was on a breathing machine, and the family, the parents were objecting to it. So they were, they did what our family basically did. They, they looked for any help that they could get to try to expose the hospital, to put the pressure on the hospital, to stop them, uh, to, to, to allow the parents to uh, care for their, their son. They even, they even went as far as got a, this, this case got so, it, it drew so much attention, Wesley. They, I believe they found a, a hospital in Italy that, uh, that agreed 
to take uh, take Charlie, but but the hospital refused to uh, to transfer him. But nevertheless, we we were connected to uh, the family, so we flew over there. And at that time, uh, they they were really getting all the help they could receive, at least legally, and uh, from 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 different people. So we went over there just to support them, um, and, and again, just draw more attention to the case to, to try and somehow put pressure on the hospital. To uh, to allow the family to, to care for their son, and, and unfortunately, we were uh, the found They were Connie and Chris were unsuccessful. They were the parents, and, and Charlie was uh, ultimately killed uh, by yeah, by the it, hospital. Yeah, it's really important to understand that, that this goes a step beyond saying we don't want to provide life sustaining treatment. Uh, the the uh, Charlie Guard's parents. I think it was actually a doctor in New York was willing to try to treat the the child. It was a genetic condition. And not only would the, did the hospital say it's in the best interest of Charlie to have life support removed and die, but that we will not permit Charlie to be taken out of the hospital to another doctor who was willing to try to provide treatment that may not have worked, but uh, was at least a, a chance of, of saving his life. And so it was heads we win, tails you lose in the, in the Charlie Guard case, and then another similar case called Alfie Evans over in the United Kingdom. It was it was quite extraordinary, and and, and again, I think it exposed uh, the what what really the, the uh, how hospitals can decide, uh, even when you have parents and, and you even have a, a uh, uh, another facility in place that and a doctor that was willing to care for him, but yet the doctors and, and at the hospital where he's where he was being treated refused to allow the parents to care for him. So I think it. It really exposed for the first time how how a hospital that the power of the hospitals have over the parents and and how much parents the rights of parents were basically ignored in this case and uh, and I think it was a wake up call uh, not just in over in the UK but here in the United States too because it was getting a lot of attention here in the United States as well Wesley as you know and and I think it scared it scared people to, to see the power really had shifted from parents making decisions to now the hospitals and the courts were digging in their heels and, and they, they weren't going to, uh, I mean, they, they weren't going to give any relief and, and they were hellbent on, on killing this young boy and, and they were successful. And it's a, it's, it's a, an illustration of something I hope listeners will understand that there's a growing utilitarianism in healthcare. In England, it's more pronounced in that case because uh, the law pro- allows the hospital to actually decide best interests even over, uh, of a, for a child, even over parents. Um, but the quality of life ethic, as it's sometimes called, that changes the, va- that devalues the, the, equal moral worth of patients based on their physical capacities or their uh, state of ability or disability is infecting the United States as well. In fact, in Texas, there's a law um, that permits if somebody uh, wants life support, and let's focus on this, wanted life support, uh, that the hospital, if a doctor says, well, I don't think the quality of life is worth living, can go to a bioethics committee and that committee meeting in secret can actually decide, no, this treatment will stop even though it's wanted and even though it's working because the patient is being kept alive, which is what the patient wants or the family wants. Uh, and at that point, the, uh, the family only has 10 days to find another uh, facility willing to treat the patient. And I know you've worked against that law as I have, but uh, 
what do you think about that? And, and, and there's even a case in Texas similar to Charlie Gard where uh, one hospital uh, not only refused to give uh, wanted to take away the life support from a little baby who's now, I think, 18 months or two years old, but was would not allow a tracheotomy to be done, which would have allowed the child to be taken out of the hospital. So it was another case of heads we win, tails you lose. Yeah, it, it's really quite disturbing when you hear about these cases, Wesley, because one, uh, many of these, many of these uh, decisions are made so quick and they're not really given uh, the patient the time they might need to see if, in fact, they can respond to treatment. And uh, in many of these cases, at least the ones that we've been called to help, uh, families are just, they just want time. Uh, they just want to see if, if treatment, if, if their loved one could, could in fact respond to treatment. So now you have a place like Texas where, say, within the first couple of days, they're putting these, this 10-day this law in place. So not only is, is the family confronted with the, uh, the trauma, so to speak, of, of their loved one being in this situation where they might have sustained a brain injury, say, for example, now they're confronted with a hospital saying, okay, you got to find another place to transfer your loved one, or in 10 days, we're going to stop treatment. So, you know, can you imagine just being a family in those situations? What do you do? I mean, you're, you, you're, you're trying to get the care for your, for your, say, daughter or son, and you got 10 days to do it. And, 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 and you know, you hear all the time how the doctors and the hospitals become hostile. Uh, they, they be, they, they're, they're pressuring the family to, uh, to, uh, make decisions that they're not, they're just not emotionally ready to make. So th it's just a bad law. Uh, I, I think you and I would agree that, uh, th there are in time, the decision might be made where, uh, treatment, it would be prudent to stop treatment, but to ask families to do this in 10 days is just, uh, I, I think is, is just wrong on on many levels and well and allowing a bioethics committee to coerce the stopping of treatment that is actually working that is keeping the patient alive because you don't think the patient's life should be lived is uh, is an authoritarianism that uh, that right. i don't think this country wants to countenance but it, you you see it growing particularly with regard to this quality of life ethic we referenced earlier that people uh, who have uh, difficulties uh, their value isn't as high as other people, and that uh, the idea of uh, you know healthcare resources becoming strained and so forth. Uh, and I think it's a really important issue for people to consider because there's a tremendous amount of dehumanization that goes on in these cases. And you experienced it in Terry's case, the idea of being called a quote vegetable close quote, which I think is one of the most demeaning, denigrating things you can say about a human being. What, you, what is your thought about that, this idea of dehumanizing the vulnerable? Terry got called a lot of names uh, during, the, she, I mean, she still does. We still get emails today. There's different dynamics intertwined in, in, in our discussion and bioethics and what's happening in these decisions. But I think, at least in my opinion, with what I saw in Terry's case and subsequently with the families that we've helped, the thousands of families that have helped, that have called us over the years, I, th I think two, two things are driving what's happening in our culture today. One is finances, cost, right? Containing yep. cost and uh, healthcare rationing. And the other is a, a disdain for people with disabilities, a deep-rooted prejudice. You know, we, we see what's happening with Down syndrome. Uh, but, but I think there's like this deep, I mean, I could point to the uh, snippet they made or the video they made, the family guy made about my sister. Uh, one of the most offensive uh, I, I could hardly describe 
the, this, this, um, what they produced this little video about Terry on, on the family guy. It was so, it was so vulgar and, and such an offense to people with disabilities and the families that care for people with disabilities. But I think that's a big part of what's happening. In this issue is just a, uh, a real disdain for, for those that have disabilities. And, 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 and that leads into a consequence of, the, of that is, is the way we are treating them. And well, perhaps I always say it, the way we're not treating them. And, yeah, um, and I think it's a profound fear, a profound terror as well. Perhaps. The yeah. the idea that I might end up in that same kind of circumstance, and it and I think it's causing people uh, to lose sight of our duties as human beings to each other, the weak, the most weak and vulnerable among us. It's something that I really think we need to think about as a society. Are we really going to become so crass that when people are helpless, people with dementia? People with, uh, you know, who've been injured uh, because of a heart attack like Terry was, uh, or people who've been, uh, you know, had been, maybe been in a uh, auto accident and suffered uh, head injuries and so forth, that we're going to write them off as if they were not persons. And in fact, there are people in bioethics who say they are not persons. And, and uh, that's as uh, an odious uh, form of bigotry as any other invidious distinction, in my opinion. It seems to me that instead of providing protections, more and more protections for these people with disabilities. And uh, we're, we're, doing, we're doing everything we can to, to remove these protections from these individuals. I mean, you see it, you write about it almost weekly, Wesley, of, of how, how the vulnerable, the medically vulnerable, the uh, people with disabilities, the people with the elderly with dementia, how they're becoming, it's becoming easier, lack of a better way of saying it, it's becoming easier and easier to, to end their lives. And it's not keeping up with the science. There's something called unresponsive wakefulness, where scientists are now learning that people that they used to think were unaware are very aware. Well, we're moving in two different directions, and we got to choose which direction, Wesley, because you're right. There's more and more research coming out on in ways that we're improving on, on and, and things we're learning about the brain and how we can treat pe people just like Terry and how m much more effective ways there are to help these individuals recover. Uh, with some of the technology that we're finding. And even, even aside from the technology, things that we're finding out about the brain and the power of the brain, the brain where it's able to, to reproduce and to heal itself. Uh, um, so, so we're moving, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing more and more of that, more and more reports of that. But at the same time, we're passing laws and, and, we're, and, we're, and we're desensitizing the public into accepting uh, or, or making it easier again, uh, you know, again, lack of a better way of saying it, making it easier to kill these individuals. So what's it going to be? Are we going to start, are we going to start, uh, using what we're finding as far as brain, brain research and, and, and the technology we have to help these individuals? Or are we going to continue to drive down this path of justifying and rationalizing reasons why it's okay, so to speak, to, to kill these individuals? And, and, you know, because dehydration, as we mentioned, is so cruel, it really is a pretext to get us to uh, allowing lethal injection of people with uh, very serious uh, disabilities or uh, unresponsive wakefulness or, or whatever uh, terminology you want to use. We are already, we're also talking already about uh, starving people with dementia, having them sign an advanced directive. So I, I don't, we don't have time to get into the details of this, but there's advocacy in bioethics to force caregivers 
not to take away feeding tubes, but to not give spoon feeding to people who willingly uh, eat and drink. And this is a, a truly frightening uh, concept. There's one other case that you were involved in that I think deserves some discussion, and that's the Jahai McMath case. In this case, um, you were right in the vortex of controversy again, because Jahai was a little girl, 13-year-old, in Oakland, California, who had throat surgery and had a bleed and was eventually declared to be brain dead, but her mother refused to accept that diagnosis. And when nobody would stand with her, when the pressure was on to try to force her to accept the idea that her daughter was gone and that all medical intervention should be stopped, you stood it at her side. Would you discuss a little bit about Jahai, about uh, the mother Nalia, and, and uh, how you got involved in the Jahai McMath case? Right. And in all the cases that, that we do help, Wesley, the families reach out to us. We never impose our, uh, our work on, on the, uh, we never reach out to the families. We, we, we were there if they need us. And that was the case. We were connected to Jahai's family. And uh, we, we stood, and it goes back to what I said earlier, Wesley, when we were talking about Texas. Uh, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not neurologists. Uh, we're not going to, I, I don't, I, we don't get into the, the, the uh, diagnosing Jahai and, and her chances at recovery, but but we are going to we are going to stand by a family who we believe uh, have the right. The parents have the right to to determine the care for their loved one. And in this case, it was Jahai. And and again, these this decision was made so quickly, Wesley. I, th- I think the decision to end her life after the hospital was responsible for putting her in this situation within days of uh, of her her brain injury. And when, when we hear about this and the family reached out to us, so, you know, our involvement is, look, the, the parents have every right to continue to care. They, they want to see if Jahai, uh, given the chance, would respond to treatment. And I was doing interviews. I remember on some of the national media was asking me, and they kept asking, you know, aren't you providing false hope for this family? And I said, well, that's not our position. Our position is this is a parental rights situation. And if Jahai's mom and father... If they want to continue treatment, they should be permitted to do so. We're, we're talking about decisions that are being made within hours and days of her injury, and she deserves more time. And if the parents want, uh, there, there might, in fact, be a time where the mom and dad might come to the decision to enter life, but it, shouldn't, it should be up to the parents and not the hospital. And, and, and I remember this, Wesley, this, this hospital, it was, it was, um, it was an, an, you know, you, you think you see it all, but this hospital got, got extremely hostile. Uh, with the family uh, in their public position, so we were just standing with the family and and just uh, you know letting them know is we we agree with you and we do it we believe that you should have the right to provide Jahai uh, additional time and treatment if that's what you want and that was our position from the beginning. And and uh, you know the issue of brain death is controversial. We'll probably talk about that in another uh, edition of Humanize. But uh, what happened in that case was uh, Jahai, there was a death certificate issued in California, but the, but the medical uh, um, support was not removed. Uh, Jahai's mother took possession of her daughter and moved her to New Jersey. And the interesting thing is that there's now been a study that has been published in a medical journal, peer-reviewed, that said that she was not, in fact, brain dead. Uh, and you and I had an experience. You introduced me to Jahai and her mother. And uh, at one point in that uh, 
about two hours we were with them, uh, Nadia decided to, she asked Jahai, please put your thumb and your index finger together. And I was standing right next to Jahai and I watched her hand begin to tremble like she was attempting it, but she didn't do it. Then, then the mother said, just, okay, don't worry about it. Put her hand down. And then I watched as Jahai and her moved her index finger to her thumb in a slow, precise way. It was not a reflex. It was not a jerk. It was done on purpose. And I almost came out of my shoes. And so here you had a situation where a mother was insisting against all the medical professionals that her daughter was not dead. And it looks like the mother was correct. Well, she was, and and in time, she was she was proven to be correct, and and her and her mom just wanted to provide you high. I mean, she loved her unconditionally, but you know, I I, got to, I remember this. This was just a sad and tragic case, Wesley. And, and you think our family was subjected to? Uh, the, I was on social. Some of the, and, and Facebook wasn't around when our case was around uh, back in the uh, early two thousands, but. I was on social media and reading some of the comments, and, and they were attacking Jahai and Naila, her mom, relentlessly. And, and it was some of the most nasty comments you would ever want to read just because a mother wanted to care for her daughter. Uh, but that's well, we all know what we're up against today in our, in our culture. It was just and really- it's, but not only attacking the mother, but attacking the helpless, vulnerable little girl. Right, right. I mean, that's just really remarkable. It's, and that shows the depth of, I think, the depth of fear and loathing of disability in this country. It really is, Wesley. It's, it's heartbreaking not only to see a family have to go through this, but then to be to put up with such a and – and that was happening in the hospital too, Wesley. I mean, some of their, her caretakers and the way they were treating Jahai's, Jahai's mom and the father. And, and I was exposed to some of that myself, just not not me personally, but seeing how they were – treating her in the hospital and it was just um it's just so difficult uh for families to have to go through this but that's that's where we are today and, and that's what's happening and and uh, you know we i, I think it's it, it's good to mention we should mention wesley we we deal with uh so so many wonderful healthcare uh people in healthcare, uh doctors and nurses and even facilities so and I, I don't want to paint a broad brush because we talk a lot about What's happening in healthcare today, and, and most of it being negative, but but there's there is some there's some wonderful doctors out there that that ethically are we value and, and look at the dignity of life and, and want to treat treat people and heal people uh, the way it once was, and hopefully we'll start seeing again. But but nevertheless, I, I think the, uh, the the trend is is what you had mentioned earlier, you, you know, basing or deciding treatment on someone's quality of life and and uh, determining if someone's going to live or die based on their quality of life, which is frightening. And, and I think we're seeing more and more of it, more and more of it each day. And it denies human exceptionalism and denies human equality. But I do think you make a very important point. It, it's easy when we discuss these issues to make it appear like, you know, the entire healthcare system is, is corrupt or, or uh, immoral. That's not the case. In fact, uh, the, mor- the morality of doctors and nurses are the ones that are in the trenches helping patients. And, and we saw that in the COVID situation where people really sacrificed themselves you know, to, well, to take care of people. So, well, to start on, But, you know, Wesley, we, we hear time and time again, you know who is, is, is responsible for much of the pressure on these decisions? It's coming down from the insurance companies. Uh, so it's not so much the, the, 
the uh, doctors and the nurses, it's they're getting instructions from insurance companies that look, they're not going to, they're not going to continue uh, providing the resources to to continue treatment. So, and I, I the think- ideology and bioethics, which uh, accepts yeah. that quality of life ethic. Um, uh, Bobby, I, our time is up. In fact, we've gone longer than I, I intended to be, but it's, I think it's an important conversation. And I think we have to move back to a place where we look at everyone, every human being, regardless of their capacities, regardless of their abilities, regardless of their health, as the inherent equal of each and every other human being. And that is the only way to approach each other in the healthcare setting where we can maintain a proper medical system. Yeah, and let me just close with this, Wesley, because I just want to uh, mention this. I, I, you've been at this now for what twenty, thirty years, and, and you're one <laughs> Most of the uh, thirty. Yeah. Well, you're one of the not to give away your age or anything, but uh, <laughs> forty. But uh, <laughs> but but I think we don't realize what a blessing you've been in in this in this uh, fight because you've been warning us long before Terry's case ever hit the uh, the papers. Uh, what was going to happen and where we we're heading as a, as a nation as far as our health care and how we're treating our most vulnerable. So uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's been, I, you know, I wish more people were paying attention to what you're writing, what you're saying, because much of what you predicted has now come true. And I don't want to say it's too late, but I got to tell you, we talk about the slippery slope and, and the point of no return. If, if we're not there, we're getting very close. But I, I, I hope, I don't know that people realize just, just, how valuable you've been to this issue and to people like Terry and, and fighting for them long before many of us even, even realized what was happening. So, you know, God bless. Uh, thank you. you. But all I do is write and talk. I mean, the people who are really doing the work are the families and, and people like you who actually get there and are standing next to people and, and accepting the brickbats that come with that. What's next for Bobby Schindler as we close out our interview? Uh, well, gosh, <laughs> we have another, another few minutes. I'd have to, no, uh, <laughs> we'll go over them. <laughs> no, just, just doing the day to day work, advocating for families. Well, we have some other projects we're working on too, Wesley. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I just, uh, the day Terry died, uh, I don't know if, if, if the other side thought, okay, it's over, but in my mind, in my family's mind, maybe not right then and there, but soon thereafter I said, no, it's not over. You know, I don't want people ever forget what they did to Terry, and I kind of work every day, you know, through helping other families, and, and so people won't forget. So I think that's really important because you've taken a horrible situation and you've actually brought some healing to families, and uh, you've really honored your sister in the way you've conducted yourself and in, in moving forward um, with your life and with the work you're doing. Thank you for being on Humanized, Bobby, and for standing in solidarity with the medically vulnerable and their families. I think you're a, you're a national treasure in what you do. One last time, how can people get in touch with the foundation? Sure. Th- well, thank you, Wesley, for that. Uh, it's real easy. It's lifeandhope.com, lifeandhope.com. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Human Eyes, please take a moment to rate and review the show. 
You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.